and this afternoon. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> Sorry. That's mean, isn't it? Sorry, Dave. Uh, okay. Oh, I've brought many things up here, so let me just get sorted out first. Uh, I, I wonder... It, I wonder how many people here have gone through the process of downsizing a home, of moving from somewhere larger to somewhere smaller, and, and what's the most dreaded part of that? I wonder whether it's having to sort through everything and trying to make space, trying to get rid of things that are no longer necessary, trying to keep things that are necessary, trying to make the decisions of what things you actually really want to keep and what things you can afford to get rid of. And if you're anything like me, you start to look through a box and three hours have passed and you're still on the first five sheets of paper and you soon despair because you're never going to get through it all. Um, I thought I'd bring along just a couple of things that are very tatty um, and a bit of a, a, bit of a mess here. Um, this is one of them. I came, I saw, I clonkered. Um, but actually, uh, it's full of things that... Uh, you guys will recognise, I'll show these to my teenagers and they haven't got the foggiest idea. Um, but, uh, yeah, these, these um, there we go. My dad and I used to disappear into what was the coal scuttle in the back of our house. I remember it having coal in it, but uh, my dad turned it into a dark room and we used to disappear in there and switch off the lights, bring out all the chemicals and... Uh, Watch that magical process of uh, things appearing magically on paper. Of course, it wasn't magic. It was silver nitrates and all sorts of other chemicals. But, uh, but still, the process was rather wonderful. I've still got this folder. Uh, it's got pictures here of... Uh, actually, I picked this one because it's got pictures of tall ships. Anyone who knows me will know I really love ships. This is perhaps part of where the passion came from. This is... Uh, 1990-something, uh, Liverpool, the tall ships race, and my dad and I travelled up there. And, uh, and I've brought along the camera that I was using because my dad was a fan of photography and he passed on his camera to me and this was the first camera I started using. And uh, it's a good candidate for the repair shop if anyone watches that. There's part of the case. Uh, there you go. Anyone recognise that? Um, it's an old agfa. It does absolutely nothing for you. Uh, nothing. Um, you have to, you know, you wind it on, take the photo, and you've got to set how far the thing is away, and you've got to set the f-stop and the aperture. It's a brilliant learning tool, because unless you understand it, it does nothing for you. Uh, you won't get photos out of it. But there you go. There's... Uh, there's there's German written inside the, uh, inside the case there. I thought I'd show that to you. If I was sorting through my house, trying to work out what to get rid of, as I've done a number of times, as ministry has caused me to move from one place to another, that's something that travels with me. And all the more precious, because uh, uh, 10 years ago, almost to the day, my dad passed away. So that's, that's a memory to me of many happy hours spent trying to coax pictures out of chemicals and out of, uh, out of negative films. There is a task, isn't there? There is a link, you'll be glad to know. There's a, there's a task of working out what to keep. I think that's a task for us in the things that we collect as we go through life. I think it's also a task for us theologically as we go through life trying to work out 
what we understand of life, what the things are that are true. Sometimes people will come along, they'll tell us things that aren't true, and somehow we've got to sift all the things that we hear, all the advertising, all the bump, all the things that come through our door, all the things that we're told. We've got to try and sort all of that. We cannot possibly hold on to it all. So what do we keep and what do we throw out? That's a really important question. And this afternoon we're going to see the Corinthian church asking that question of Paul. Paul, we're confused. What should we keep? What should we throw out? These people have come in telling us a whole bunch of stuff and it doesn't match up with what you've been telling us. What should we keep? And what should we throw out? Now, at first sight, the things that they're being encouraged to throw out seem fairly innocuous. Well, let's have a look, shall we? But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, on an average day, going about the things that come, you know, the things that need to happen on an average day, the resurrection of the dead isn't something that perhaps I spend much time thinking about. How does the resurrection of the dead affect me? Well, that's what Paul's unpacking in our passage this evening. So here come the false teachers saying, you know that that resurrection of the dead stuff is just nonsense. You don't need need to believe in that. Paul comes back saying, no, no, guys, here's why the resurrection of the dead is important. This afternoon, uh, we're going uh, we're going to look at that. So, Paul started, as I believe David showed you last time at the beginning of this chapter, by reminding you that uh, there was a gospel that he had shared with the Corinthian Christians. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. That gospel of Jesus Christ come to earth lived amongst his people, died, buried, and then resurrected on the third day. And then he goes through to give examples of all the people that Jesus appeared to after that time. He reminds the Corinthian believers that when he he shared that with them and his partners in ministry shared that with them, they believed it, and then they chose to stand firm on that gospel teaching. Now though they're in confusion because this other teaching's come in and it doesn't match up. So, should they believe that the dead are raised, or should they believe that the dead aren't raised? Should they keep the resurrection of the dead as part of their Christian belief, or should they throw it out? It's important to understand the implications before we make the decision, isn't it? Well, as Paul's going to show us, it really could not be more important. So, let's ask that question. What difference does the resurrection of the dead make? Let's imagine, says Paul, that there is no resurrection of the dead. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, because there's no resurrection of the dead, so clearly Christ can't be raised. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, then he tells us exactly what difference that makes. In fact, six difference it makes. Here's the first Verse 14, our preaching is useless. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then I ought to go and sit down 
right now, says Paul, because preaching will make no difference. Now, if you scan your eyes back up to the top of 15, you'll hear Paul, out, Paul spell out what his gospel is. I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what Paul believes. And just before he, spells, before he says that, he spells out why he preaches the gospel in verse 2. By this gospel, you are saved. Is the resurrection of the dead important? Well, yeah, because it's a, a, a crucial component part of the gospel. And by this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly, says Paul, to the word that he preached then that we're preaching today, otherwise you have believed in vain. That's right, Paul preaches Christ crucified, buried and resurrected, but if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, neither can we be raised from the dead. And so, no one will be saved. So my standing up here to proclaim God's word today is an empty gesture if there's no resurrection of the dead. Number two, not only is our preaching futile, but, verse 14, our faith, then, is useless. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then it isn't just what I say from the front, what I preach, that's useless. Actually, it's what we've believed. The very core and foundation of our faith is pointless, worthless, empty, if there's no resurrection from the dead. There is no death-conquering saviour if there's no resurrection from the dead. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then actually that begins to tell us more than that about God himself, doesn't it? Verse 3, as we preach and teach and share this faith, Paul says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then we're spreading falsehood. Verse 15, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Jesus clearly told his disciples that he would be raised from the dead three times in Mark's Gospel in chapters 8, 9, and 10, just as one example. And so if Jesus was not raised from the dead then God has misrepresented himself. Or we've misunderstood what God says and misrepresented him. Somewhere there's been a breakdown in communication, hasn't there? At the very best. But all of the trust is gone then, isn't it? There's no foundation that we can rest on if the dead are not raised. We have no trustworthy word of God. The Bible cannot be trusted if the dead are not raised. We have no reliable basis on which to believe. Little wonder then that Paul continues, number four, your faith is futile. Verse five, you are still in your sins. If the dead are not raised, God has misrepresented himself, as we've already said, and, and our faith does not work. We have nothing that we can pin these things on and we find that God has not done what God said he would do. He said that he would die and then he would rise to new life, the first fruits of salvation. If the dead are not raised, if the dead are not raised, then our salvation is not secure. Christ has not conquered sin and death by rising to new life. There is no forgiveness of sins, no release from the penalty of death, no hope of being spared from the wrath of God through that 
death and resurrection from the dead, no saving from our rebellion and our disobedience before him because there has been no full sacrifice for sins. Which is why Paul then concludes in number six, uh, and all those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. That's verse 18. Now, perhaps we begin to see why this is more than a theological exercise, more than simply playing around with words. I wonder whether the very reason that the Corinthian church had been prompted to send this letter to Paul is because they're wrangling with the theology, trying to work out what the theology means, and they've noticed this mismatch, but actually... That's not the reason that's gotten to actually set pen to paper. The reason that's gotten to set pen to paper is that actually some of the believers, those who've placed their faith in Christ, are beginning to pass away and they're trying to work out what's really happened to them. And they're trying to say, well, if what these, these teachers over here are saying is true, then we have no hope for these friends, these brothers and sisters, these loved ones, who we've lost, if there's no resurrection of the dead. And so, out of that heart, that compassion, that care, that gentleness and that concern, they write to Paul and say, Paul, how actually is it? Is it true? Can we trust in this? Can we throw out this other teaching? This is no abstract theology, no disconnected set of theories. This is about brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, friends and relatives, even children who have gone to be with the Lord. It's about their destiny. What happened to them? Can we have hope that they have been raised to new life for eternity with their loving Father? Or are they lost for eternity? Was their faith in the Christian gospel, the gospel Paul preached, was that faith in vain? And of course, as well as being about them, it's also about us. What about us? About our faith today as a congregation, as individuals? What of our faith? What of our destiny? What about the gospel that we have believed If there is no resurrection from the dead, if Jesus did not rise on the third day, on that first Easter Sunday, then we have no message, we have no hope, we have nothing to offer anybody that will make any eternal difference. No chance that we might know life beyond death. In fact, it would be worse than that, because throughout history, being a Christian believer has come with struggle and with trouble and with hardships and with difficulties. For Paul, he knew he was writing to a church in first century Greece, a church full of believers trying to live out their lives in a non-Christian society under the Roman Empire, a life that would have required great self-sacrifice, a life that could easily have brought scorn and shame, could have caused them to be mocked and laughed at, labelled as little Christs, Christians, and ridiculed. 
Living for Jesus could come at a cost as you were ostracised in society or people chose not to shop at your shop to take their business elsewhere. Was it worth it? Was the cost worth it? Not if there's no resurrection from the dead, says Paul. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He should know. He's been beaten up, chased out of town, jailed. He's experienced all of that for Christ. If it's only for this life, we're suckers. Why would you do that? He's right, isn't he? Now, don't get me wrong, there are a thousand blessings that come from being part of the Christian church in this life. A thousand blessings. But those blessings come because God is who he said he is. And at the same time, being a Christian, living out a life of genuine faith in the midst of a community that often doesn't understand him comes at a cost. As we're honest about our faith, we may get mocked or ridiculed by our friends. We may get held at a distance because we're those odd Christian people. They might draw back if we share Christ with them or treat us with mistrust. Being a Christian can cost us friendships. It can cost us status or standing in society. Being Christian definitely calls on us to be generous with what we have, whether it be money or time, or effort. Money that we might have spent on other things. Now we give to the church. Time we might have spent in other ways, we give to the church. Energy we might have spent on hobbies or clubs, now we spend in prayer and the word or baking for the cakes after midweek service. In offering to help others. The Christian life comes with a cost. So if it's only for this life, what's the benefit? Brothers and sisters, if you ever feel a bit worn down and wonder whether being a Christian is worth it, then hear Paul again. Verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied because we've lived a life deluded a life spent doing unnecessary things to no end. But now I'm going to be cheeky. I'm grateful to, uh, to David and Dave as they planned uh, the service this afternoon that they, uh, they added that little bit of verse 20 on because, uh, frankly, the sermon would be really depressing if we didn't get there. So, uh, so let's just nick those few words I'll read from verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Not just Christ, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, you and me. It's a beautiful moment, a beautiful moment in this letter to the Corinthian church. 
Paul has built up this great argument like a tower of blocks that we all stood one on top of each other. And I don't know about you, but as, as he said, if no resurrection from the dead this, and if no resurrection of the dead this, you know, our preaching is futile, we've, our faith is in vain, and, and you know, it's all been pointless. And, and it's depressing, frankly, isn't it? And it looms over us. And then with one swipe in verse 20, he just knocks the whole thing down. But Christ is indeed raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. And so all of those ifs become nothing. Because none of that is the case. Our preaching is not futile. Our faith is not in vain. Our hope is true and certain. The tower comes tumbling down and we realise with huge relief that Jesus is exactly who he set out to be. He has done all he set out to do. He has risen. (coughs) He has conquered sin and death. And so we do have a living and active saviour. We do have a hope. We can preach Christ crucified and resurrected in the sure and certain hope that by faith, we and all those who have placed their faith in him will know eternity with him. Praise God. We are forgiven our sins. We, We do not face the wrath of God. Our faith is not futile. It is trust in our living saviour God, our redeemer. And so we know, we know that though this life, I was going to say may, let me rephrase that, though this life will bring trials and suffering, It will involve sacrifices. It will call on us to steward the good things that God has given us with generosity and at cost to ourselves. Oh, this is a land we're passing through on the way to glory. The best of days we experience today, well, we have better days ahead. And however bad things may become, we know we have glory set before us. We travel through this foreign land, issuing the call to others to join us in traveling together, encouraging one another with the hope of the resurrection. I hope that when I ask you, is the resurrection of the dead important? We'll all ask with a resounding yes and amen and thank you, God. Let me pray. Lord God, there are so many messages, so many things that we hear, so many opportunities to take on board different things that it can be a job to sift them. But we thank you, Lord, that your word in all its fullness is trustworthy and true. And we thank you that it shows us our crucified, buried raised, resurrected, living, ascended Saviour who is in heaven, interceding to the Father at his right hand on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that as you return to heaven, you sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And so, Lord, though this time may involve trials and sufferings and hardship, 
we never face those alone, Lord, but rather we face them with your indwelling spirit and we face them with that sure and certain knowledge that, Lord, we are walking with you through these times to a glorious eternity. Lord, encourage us, cause us to rejoice in your goodness, O our resurrected Saviour. Amen. Okay.